Hey everybody, hey everyone. This is the latest episode of the Ball and Chain podcast, episode number 30, uh, 34, I believe. Uh, and uh, we got to get those numbers kind of uh, straightened out here. Uh, but anyways, um, excited for the guests that we have uh, today. Uh, but first, a um, couple of updates as you hopefully uh, checked out the latest Ball and Chain podcast episode uh, that we dropped on Monday from uh, over the weekend that I did with Jess Udi on my experience in going back to uh, Milwaukee uh, to see game six of the NBA finals and the Bucks winning uh, the first championship in 50 years and the first championship in my lifetime and the first championship since I've been a fan uh, and how special of an experience it was. So if you haven't checked that out, please do so uh, on the Ball and Chain podcast. And this uh, this episode in the Ball and Chain podcast, as always, is brought to you by Zen Sports, which is the sports betting platform giving customers more choice compared to anything else. And soon to be uh, licensed in Nevada, we are entering the final stages of that license application process. Uh, we are very, very excited about that. We are crossing our fingers and hopeful that we will be accepting bets in Nevada, starting with uh, the first night of the NFL season, which is Thursday, September 9th. And uh, so I've got a lot of, lot of good things going on here in, in my neck of the world, sports-wise. Uh, Aaron Rodgers is back, which is which is great. Uh, and of course, as mentioned before, the Bucks won the title and the Brewers are in first place. So it's a good time to be a Wisconsin sports fan. Uh, so um, with all that gloating aside, I am excited to welcome our latest guest on the Ball and Chain podcast, uh, which is who is Dan Hannigan Daly, otherwise known as DHD. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today, Dan. Thanks for having me on. And also, congrats on moving through the licensing in Nevada. I know that that is no small feat. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, hopefully, you get to the finish line soon. I, I know how difficult that can be. Yeah. So, uh, just to give a little uh, more detailed update there. So, we are on the August agenda uh, with the Nevada Gaming Control Board. Uh, first hearing is uh, next week, actually. Uh, and then the second and final one is on uh, August 19th, I believe. Uh, and it has been um, uh, a lot that you hit the nail right in the head. It has been a lot of work, uh, basically giving up every ounce of privacy I've ever had in my life uh, to be able to uh, get the Zen Sports application and the key person application for myself and uh, our co-founder. And so I thank you for that because it's uh, it's been a it's been a real bear. But um, good news is the end is in sight and uh, it'll have been worth it uh, once it's done. That's great. Yeah. Fingers crossed it, it goes well for you. Uh, you know, certainly for the, the folks in Nevada, whether they live there or traveling through, I think they're they're due for some innovation in the space as yeah. well. So that's very exciting for the consumer. Yeah, that's awesome. So why don't we kind of start with that um, in terms of your background? So uh, you worked at DraftKings for about five, a little over five years, five five years and eight months, um, you know, doing a variety of things. And so, uh, you know, clearly, they are the leader in the space on the sports betting side, at least in my eyes. Um, and I would say in the eyes of Wall Street as well, given their market cap. So uh, why don't we start with that? Um, you started off at DraftKings back in uh, 2015. And so you were obviously, and then through 2021, so you were obviously there, you know, when PASPA got repealed and sports betting started to get legalized in the U.S. So would love to hear the journey of how you got into DraftKings, what it was like throughout your tenure there. Um, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, cool. So, you know, first and foremost, DraftKings, fantastic organization through and through. And, you know, certainly it comes through in the numbers um, as they report them and, and Wall Street and, and whatnot. But I joined DraftKings in 2015, uh, had worked in the sports betting space for a few years prior 
uh, out, out in Vancouver and also in the UK. Um, and, you know, in the summer of 2015, it was basically impossible to miss DraftKings and FanDuel. Uh, if you were into sports, you know, they were on pretty much every single broadcast for any sport imaginable. Right. I believe combined spent about a billion dollars um, on, on advertising. And so I sort of thought to myself, that organization looks cool. They seem to have pretty lofty ambitions um, in moving sports fans and the sports consumption experience forward. So, uh, you know, I just kind of shot my shit shot my shot, reached out to a couple of individuals at DraftKings, happened to, to have a, a good opportunity there. That was the right fit. Packed my bags, moved from Vancouver to Boston originally. Um, and it was, it was incredibly special. I mean, the, the buzz in the air at that time was, was phenomenal. Uh, I started in, in October of 2015. And unfortunately, literally, like I want to say it was the second or maybe the third week that I was there was when a lot of the controversy started to hit. The, the daily fantasy industry, no longer was it small enough to sort of fall uh, fly under the radar. There were a lot of processes and, and checks and balances that were simply not in place. And I think, you know, in retrospect, uh, there were, there were uh, things that occurred that could have been avoided, but uh, certainly in, in a way it was a bit of a godsend going forward. So, you know, worked on the fantasy side for the first couple of years, anything as it pertained to new sports, new game types that we wanted to, to launch. I was effectively in charge of in collaboration with a few others and, you know, spent a lot of my time in the buildup uh, of the, the path to reveal repeal. Um, so in early 2017, there was a proposed merger with FanDuel, um, given really our backs were against the walls at, at that time. I mean, I joined DraftKings, we had about 200 employees and the, the rocket ship sort of got a little bit stagnated in that, you know, there were, there were questions about, what states were we going to be able to go into, uh, you know, just the long-term legitimacy of everything. So really, we kind of stopped hiring at that time. We didn't lose, you know, huge numbers of, of folks, but we stopped hiring. And that's where the DraftKings and FanDuel merger was proposed. You know, we were preparing for that. Basically did a whole redesign of the entire fantasy platform to be able to handle all the different game types that would be needed to support both DraftKings and FanDuel game types and all of the the new consumers that would come over from FanDuel to, to the DK platform and whatnot. And, and then, you know, that got shot down by the FTC, which was obviously pretty disappointing um, in that we'd spent a lot of time preparing. Um, but literally the next day, good news hit. And, and the, the rumors started to emerge that sports betting was, was on its way in the U.S. And we didn't really have any kind of a, a, an understanding of what the potential timeline would be, but, I definitely jumped at the opportunity having, having worked in sports betting prior uh, to joining DraftKings, I had probably the most knowledge or definitely the most knowledge of the space relative to those who were at DK at the time. So I uh, was given the opportunity to, to lead the charges there. And you know, we basically just went away and started building and really had no idea when we were going to launch a, sort of a fun fact, probably not very well known. I imagine is our initial intention was to launch in the UK in early 2018. Obviously, we pivoted quite heavily as things started to accelerate. But you know, really, we're we were focused on figuring out what the strategy was uh, and, and leaning into the fact that at least there were some level of regulations in the state of New Jersey, which seemed to be the place that we would end up going, um, and and started building. And obviously, the end result was was pretty promising. Yeah, and so I thought it was really interesting that the FTC uh, rejected that merger because they have 
allowed a lot of other M&A activity that's, that were way, way bigger numbers in terms of, you know, potential combined market cap or value um, than what DraftKings and FanDuel were looking at at the time. Do you have any kind of insight as to why they would have, you know, rejected? I mean, I get they were the two biggest players in the daily fantasy sports space. Okay. But it wasn't that big of a, you know, a number. It wasn't in the, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, $100 billion mark. Was there, was there any good reason why they didn't want it to go through? Yeah, honestly, I don't know. I think everyone at the organization was was pretty perplexed um, when the decision was actually made. And, and like oddly enough, there were there were several executives of the organization when the when the deal was cut off that were in Edinburgh at the FanDuel offices. Like no one was expecting the news when it actually came down. So, I mean, your guess is as good as mine. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in hindsight, it's worked out for all parties, oh, yeah. most parties, anyways, relatively well. Yeah, well, and I, I, no, I think it's interesting because I, I I know that obviously right when Pasco was getting repealed, that's when FanDuel got acquired by uh, Patty Power Betfair. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, they've gone on to, you know, basically remain independent. They kept them independent, at least here in the U.S., um, you know, as their own brand and whatnot. Um, I'm assuming it's been a pretty good deal for for Betfair and, um, uh, you know, in terms of what they paid for versus what they ultimately have gotten out of it. Um, you know, because obviously FanDuel is one of the top sports betting platforms here in the U.S. Uh, so, yeah, you're, prob- you're probably right. I mean, maybe for FanDuel shareholders, maybe it would have been ultimately better to have been aligned with um, a U.S. brand like DraftKings that eventually went public, uh, especially if people had held on to like their shares and whatnot. But, uh, yeah, I would probably agree with you that it was, especially for DraftKings, probably a blessing in disguise that it ultimately worked out that way because then DraftKings could remain independent and grow you know, to the level that it has today. So, uh, so I'd love to understand or kind of almost be a virtual fly in the wall, you know, as the Supreme Court ruling came down in May of 2018, that PASPA was repealed. And so up to this point, you know, DraftKings had almost entirely been um, a daily fantasy sports product. And I think everyone can, can pretty reasonably admit that daily fantasy sports is nowhere near as big of a, a market or opportunity as uh, traditional sports betting is. It's a nice market for sure, but, you know, sports betting is, is just because of its longstanding tradition and, and um, traction across the rest of the world uh, is, is really, I think a lot of people think the $100, $150 billion opportunity, especially here in the U.S. So, um, you know, what was that like, you know, inside the, the headquarter walls at DraftKings when PASPA got repealed, was it just complete euphoria? Was it like, oh my gosh, now we've got to try and, you know, go into this other market? Was it a mix of both? I'm just kind of curious, like what the thought was, um, you know, inside a pretty big company. I can tell you what a thought was at Zen Sports as we pivoted, but I'd love to hear what it was like at DraftKings. Yeah, I mean, we were obviously very excited the day that the news happened, largely because we knew that it was going to happen. So we had already really started down the path I want to say in, in, in August of, of 2017 is when we really started putting the plans in place. And like I mentioned, we were anticipating going, going to the UK, but by May of 2018, we were pretty close to having our MVP product uh, ready for the DGE to go and, and propose a, a launch in the state of New Jersey, whenever they were, whenever they were ready. So definitely lots of excitement was in the air. We had a team carved out, uh, from the, the fantasy side to go and build the, the sportsbook product that started in earnest in around January uh, of 2018. And, and, you know, we were fortunate definitely in that our selection of a, of a third-party partner can be to, to provide the, the sports betting and trading expertise. We're, we're exceptional as well. And we're able to move sort of in lockstep with us 
as well. We were very, very confident that we'd be able to get to market well in advance of the NFL season. And honestly, looking back, kind of shocking that we were able to get there first um, and have uh, have the market all to ourselves for, I want to say it was three weeks, that none of the other major players in the space had um, had, had built something that was shovel ready effectively to go to New Jersey. Um, so yeah, we were, we were incredibly excited, obviously. Nice. Well, uh, so it was funny with Zen sports because up to that point, we had been a, a recreational sports app helping connect people to meet up to play sports for money and for fun, uh, discovery tournaments, leagues, that sort of thing. And we had been doing that for about 15 months. And right as PASPA, as the news about PASPA came out, uh, I turned to my co-founder, Aton and said, we need to pivot to sports betting. Uh, you know, the rec sports market is nice, um, but it's just not that exciting and interesting and large. Um, you know, as a tech and venture back startup, you have to be building the largest thing possible and going after the biggest opportunity. And so, um, you know, for us, it was very different. Like it wasn't, we had never, we never had the intention of going into sports betting like, like DraftKings had. So you guys had a year and a half to two years to prepare for it um, and almost have an MVP ready to go. I mean, we, I mean, this was just completely like news hit, turned to my co-founder said, let's do this. Um, <laughs> and so, um, and then we spent about uh, six to nine months uh, revamping the product for that. Um, and then we launched internationally in March of 2019. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I think, um, you know, it probably, probably caught some others by surprise that we're maybe also in the DFS space, um, you know, that this had happened. Uh, because I think, I do think that there are also still kind of only so many dollars to go around um, for, you know, in the sports space. And so uh, there's definitely DFS focused people uh, or players. Um, and definitely only uh, sports betting focused players at the same time. There is some overlap, obviously. And so, you know, I mean, if you've got $1,000 a month or $500 a month to, uh, to bet on sports with, um, some of that mo- money might move over. And so it's, I think it's, um, I think it's uh, great uh, on DFS on the lead gen side. Um, but I, I really believe that the, that the sports betting piece is, even though we're up to 27 states now in the U.S., we're just getting started, right? Um, and I believe it's just going to be a, a definitely 100 plus billion dollar market um, for those companies that are, you know, operating here. And actually that's, a, that's another interesting question I wanted to ask. So we started out internationally because it was the fastest way for us to get to market. It was easier to get licenses overseas, et cetera. So I guess that's an interesting question I want to ask for existing operators or just larger enterprise companies in the space that were U.S. focused. How do they look at the international market? It doesn't have to be DraftKings, just kind of curious. And it can be your opinion too, you know, because my kind of general take is the rest of the world has obviously more saturation, whereas the U.S., I mean, like I mentioned a minute ago, it feels like we're just getting started here and inning, like, to use a sports metaphor, in inning two or three of a nine-inning game right now. What are your thoughts on, you know, U.S. versus international? Yeah, I'm definitely in agreement. I think I've actually used that exact same line as well. That we're like, oh. I feel like we're moving into the third inning now, Yeah, um, where we're starting to see that next wave of product and, and a little bit more innovation than we had seen, certainly initially uh, as it pertains to sort of the international versus versus us mix i'm definitely in, in agreement there you know in in certain international regions it's incredibly saturated the barrier to entry is obviously lower so it does give you an opportunity if you want to trial something out it might be a little bit easier to get something get some some market validation in a sense obviously the the us market is a little bit different from a consumer expectations perspective but to me, it really comes down to the opportunity cost of focusing elsewhere in lieu of focusing on, on the U.S. And that, that's certainly been the approach that a DraftKings 
had taken, at least prior to my departure a couple months ago, you know, we really wanted to focus on the opportunity at hand, specifically in the U.S. You know, any other avenues that we could, could go down um, probably be a little bit of distraction. I will include Canada in that conversation as part of the U.S., given there's obviously sure. a lot of adjacencies there with the U.S. and, and Canadian market and similar sport mix and, and all of that uh, as well. But, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong necessarily with going to an international market initially to, to test things and, and do it in a bit of a lighter weight manner. But, you know, finding a, a, a way to get into a U.S. state, and there's certainly a couple that are a little bit, I guess easier would be the word I would use, a little bit more cost-effective to get into Colorado, New Jersey seem to be the two that are most uh, amenable to, you know, interesting startups that are trying to get a foot uh, a foot in the door, so to speak. Um, yeah, I think that's probably my perspective on it generally. Yeah, it's funny you say that because that's almost exactly been our approach. In fact, we're actually going to be pausing our international operations uh, for probably about mm, three to six months while we really ramp up and focus on Nevada, uh, as well as some other states that we have license applications on file in. Um, it's, you're, you're 100% right. It's not about um, as much, it's not as much about like saturated or competition versus no competition, but just focus. Um, I mean, we definitely, and, and I would say too, also, um, we found some things as we were operating internationally that worked and some things that didn't and some markets that were really good to go into and some markets that were kind of bleh. Um, and so I think, uh, that'll also help, you know, probably in 2022, we will probably, um, also, uh, revisit some of the international opportunities that we were at before. Um, but then we'll have like, I think even more laser focus than definitely than when 2019, we're just like, okay, let's try and go here, 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 and do all this other stuff. Um, it was just kind of scattered. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you that the, that the focus part is, is important. Um, and the U S you know, uh, the U S market is, is interesting. I found, I mean, uh, you know, even though Nevada is is a is a very thorough process to say the least, um, because they've obviously got a lot of processes in place. It's not too pricey um, to get into there. I mean, definitely a lot of legal, a lot of regulatory costs, like all the states have. Um, but I definitely there's other states like uh, Pennsylvania uh, or Illinois that have very cost prohibitive numbers to get into, especially for a startup like us um, that make it much harder. Uh, but that is. It is very interesting to see. It's going to be interesting to see how a lot of that plays out, um, you know, over the next few years as more states legalize it. Some states make it easier to get into. Some states have the one foot rule to sign up. Other states don't. You know, will that create competition among other states to to make it easier for operators to get licensed in, to have more features, um, all that kind of stuff? I think is is going to be really um, interesting to see as we go along here. But it's it's obviously a, a very exciting time. Um, and a great time to be in this space. So on that side of things, just really excited to, to be a part of all this. I uh, was in sports. So then I got to ask, of course, the question. So you you left there in May to um, to become CEO at Sports Info Solutions. Um, we'll talk about Sports Info Solutions here in a second. But what what kind of prompted you to leave there to go on to the data side of things uh, within the sports space? Yeah, I mean, I, I, as you mentioned earlier, I was at DraftKings for um, just under six years. Saw the company grow from. 200 people to 3,500 people become you know, pretty, a pretty sizable corporation uh, at this stage. And you know, while I, I greatly love the, the organization and everyone there, uh, I think I, I found myself wanting to go to a smaller organization where there was a little bit more nimbleness, a lot of the stuff that historically DraftKings had done really well. And they, they still continue mm -hmm. to develop products and be innovative and, and are very robust in that sense. But 
I, I was I was approached uh, by a group that was acquiring a large portion of, of Sports Info Solutions, and I openly didn't have a lot of knowledge of, of SIS, having having gone into it initially. And as I as I got into it and thought about it a little bit more and, and understand how valuable data is, especially within the sports betting ecosystem, but also on the on the the team side that we have a lot of businesses business in, it seemed like a, a no brainer opportunity in that. You know, where there's 20, 30 sportsbook operators currently in the space on the data side, there's only really four, uh, four data providers that are servicing all of those different sportsbooks. And without that data, those sportsbooks don't really run. I, I recall in, I want to say it was October of this past year, Stats Perform had issues where their data wasn't coming through to FanDuel. And like basically daily fantasy on FanDuel was unplayable for three weeks. And no one was yelling at Stats Perform. They're all yelling at FanDuel. But it really showed that that data is effectively the oil that powers this whole thing. And, and without you know, really incredible data providers, uh, and not to say that there aren't currently, but without those, those really awesome data providers, the whole thing sort of falls flat. And so as I dug in further and further, it seemed like a, a really interesting opportunity to, to lead the charge uh, at an organization that had been absolute pioneers in the data space. So for those unaware, you know, Sports Info Solutions started in, in 2002. It was actually Baseball Info Solutions at the time, founded by a gentleman named John Dewan, who's our current CEO, an absolute visionary and pioneer in the sports data space. He was the first person to put a, po- to put a box score on the internet, which is pretty remarkable um, given you know, how, how, uh, how regularly uh, you know, data is available on, on the internet, specifically sports data and whatnot. So founded the organization in 2002 and wanted to go really, really deep in the sport of baseball, um, partnered with a, a guy named Bill James, who was pretty well known in the sports data and analytics space and, you know, effectively c- captured every single data point you could possibly imagine uh, around baseball and not just at the major league level, but at other levels of baseball and would sell that data and analysis to professional teams that, you know, one of the first clients of, of baseball info solutions at the time was the Oakland A's. And obviously they later made a movie about the Oakland A's <laughs> and their use of data. That, that movie is Moneyball, of course. So yeah, it's, it's a fascinating story. Um, you know, the group added football in 2016, basketball just last year with a new product, uh, proof of concept really around the NBA draft. So it's a big day being the NBA draft tonight for our organization. We're really amped up. We've got uh, a number of clients in the top 10 actually using our, our hoop scouting lab to make their decisions uh, on draft day tonight. So pretty exciting. And you know, certainly with my background and experience, keen to take our data and our expertise and expand that into the sports betting arena, whether that's servicing sports books, whether that's servicing sports fans, sports media companies, there's a lot of different ways in which we can go, which we're, you know, we're obviously strategizing about, um, right now but but couldn't be happier with the change honestly it's been it's been a really fun ride uh, in the three and a half months so far that's awesome and you know here's the thing i think you would ask every sports betting operator um you know what is your biggest pain point and that is data um and that obviously is a very big broad topic um and it can range from everything of getting updated odds quickly enough. It can range from having better, you know, algorithms and models for, you know, uh, which uh, data and odds and numbers to look at, which factors to take into account uh, for for odds and lines and so forth. I think it's, um, I, I can definitely tell you for us, 
um, you know, that's also probably one of our, you know, biggest, not, it's, it's not a, it's not a big pain point, but if I were to have to say, Hey, what's one thing that we would love to see be done better, it would hundred percent hands down be, you know, better data. Um, and then also too, like, when you think about it, like, you know, we want to be an entertainment product, um, but we obviously recognize that there's people that are, you know, more sharp and, and whatnot. And it would be nice to always try to stay one step ahead of, of them. Um, and I'm sure that's also a sentiment that every sports betting operator echoes. Now for us on the peer to peer side, uh, that somewhat alleviates it because then it's just person A versus person B and we just take the rake and we don't care who wins. Um, but then we do also offer this, our own sports book. Um, and in that regard, you know, of course, then we, we want to make sure that, you know, we're not, um, in a position where we're, you know, at risk or whatever. Um, and we can keep liquidity low and stuff like that. But, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, uh, and there's also PR backlash that comes from when sharps don't get to play as much or bet as much. It'd be nice to just say, hey, you know, we have just figured this out better. And so it feels like it's a little bit of an arms race to see who can get the best data, both among operators and among operators versus sharps. Um, so what are your thoughts on on all of that? Yeah, I'm definitely in agreement with all of that. And, you know, I am excited to see sort of this next wave of, of, of models and, and odds providers that are coming in that really want to tackle the problems that are currently facing the market. And yeah, obviously there's huge growth still within the, the sports betting space, but what really um, I think perplexed me while at, while at DraftKings and, and as we've gone through and had lots of conversations with different operators in the space, um, in the context of sports info solutions, there are major, major gaps in the live betting experience right now. And a lot of it yeah. has to do with, with data and the transmission of that data and the latency associated with that data and the inability to, to really feel confident about the data that we have relative to, you know, what the professional betters or the sharks or whatever you want to call them might have. I mean, the fact that still to this day, 20% of, a, of an NFL game, if not more, markets are suspended. Like you literally cannot bet for one fifth of a game of the top level of sport in America is a little bit shocking. And yes, we're still early, obviously, in the uh, in the sports betting space here, here in the US and the distinct focus on it, but major, major opportunities there. That's where re really where we see there's, there's a lot of value that we can add because of the depth of our data and our ability to create custom data feeds that are effectively fit, fit for purpose. If you wanna know, all, all you wanna know is when the ball is snapped, we can give you that data. You wanna know when the running back gets to level two only, because that's when you want to suspend and not anytime sooner, you know, we'll send you that data and we can create custom feeds like that. Um, so I think it's a really unique value prop that we're able to bring to the table. And, and obviously from my background and experience and some of the others I've brought on, brought into SIS, we have, we have that, that end user in mind and everything that we do, we want the bet delays to be zero. We want you to be able to take the largest bet you possibly can right. you know, in every single scenario. And, allow for those, you know, those next types of markets to exist in a, in a seamless way, like simple bet. I'm a big, big fan of, they're a customer of ours at SIS, the way that they're tackling, you know, that next play, that next pitch, that next at bat, those types of markets, I think they're doing it in a really intelligent way. And, and hopefully that comes through in, in the, the next wave of products that they're able to release in the, in the coming, coming months with the various operators that they partner with. And so with, with the data, really being the focus of it all, it, it can really ultimately change massively the trajectory of the space in general. So uh, uh, does sports information solutions um, not then um, 
partner directly with the operators? Are you like the provider to the data providers that provide the APIs to the sports operators? We, we can do both, right? Okay. So it, it just depends. Um, we will partner with any group that has data scientists that want the, want data to, to power their models um, effectively. And you know, we're also, unsurprisingly, we build models ourselves and, and thus far they're not uh, available for, for betting specifically, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't anticipate that being a reach to say that we would eventually have, have betting models that are available off the shelf for operators as well. But, but currently, yes, I mean, we're, we're talking to pretty much every operator that's out there and similarly on the odds provider side. Um, right. We want to help move the whole industry forward. Right. That's another reason why I left traffic is that the scope is, is everywhere with this one. Yeah. And so it, what's interesting is we offer in-game betting on the peer-to-peer side because you can be watching the game in real time and want to bet on it and that's fine. But it's, uh, we don't offer in-game betting on the sports op- on the sports book side for bets that we offer as a book simply because it's just so tough to get that real, in ta- uh, real in- in-game, real-time data. Uh, well, I shouldn't say it's tough, but it's just, uh, I, I'm just, I don't know. It's just a little bit concerning. Will the data be accurate? Like, will somebody be able to just because of latency issues, you know, have an edge or something like that? So how do you solve for some of those some of those latency issues are real time issues because obviously, uh, you know, if it's baseball, not a big deal because, you know, pitches are 20 to 40 seconds. Football, probably not a big deal either. But basketball, I mean, you could score in a second or two um, type of thing. So, how does, you know, what are your thoughts on like getting the data, uh, you know, in real time and super, super real time um, and dealing with latency issues? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the biggest, the biggest portions where we'll see advancements there are really. Uh, on the technological side, I mean, focusing on working with the leagues, obviously all the leagues now are, are really starting to lean into the betting space. It's actually really remarkable to see how much has changed just in the, the three years since a, a, a regulated sports bet was taken online in the state of New Jersey. I mean, to, to think that um, you're able to see live odds on screen during pretty much every MLB game and certainly on certain broadcasts anyways, um, is quite remarkable, but I think there's there's generally a strong awareness that this is an issue that we all need to work together to solve. And and for myself, I, I'm a strong believer that you know the advancements in some of the technology, especially around transmission of video uh, and other similar technologies, will greatly enable this uh, reduction in latency that ultimately will allow a sports book or a data science team who's building the models to just feel more confident that what they're putting out is hyper accurate and that it cannot be beat by someone who's court siding at the venue, et cetera. Right. So we're not there yet, but I think we've seen some, some pretty big steps taken in the last few months, even um, that are, that are, are really exciting. Cool. And which sports do you currently offer uh, data for? Is it uh, all the major American and, uh, you know, European or international uh, sports leagues? Is it just a few select sports? What does that look like? We've been very focused, uh, football, baseball, and basketball solely uh, at, at this stage. Not to say that we won't expand into, into many other sports, and certainly that is very likely to be the case over the course of time, but we've thus far really elected to go really, really deep as opposed to really wide. And, and obviously, our, our data is good enough to help teams make decisions on draft day and on the field of play, et cetera. So, you know, we believe very, we're very confident that what we have can add a lot of value into the betting arena for both the sportsbooks and, and the, the end users as well. 
And how long has uh, SIS been around for? Because I, the reason why I asked that question is, um, you know, as you ramping up a company, that's that's absolutely the right approach. Like go deep, uh, uh, you know, in one area and then expand into other areas. Yeah. So so SIS was founded in 2002 as baseball. Oh, okay. associations. Um, but really, we're in a, in a pretty sizable uh, change period right now. So a couple of months ago, prior to a couple of months ago, the, the company was bootstrapped. Um, had never sought outside investment, which is obviously quite different to the rest of the, the sports data technology betting space, generally speaking. Um, so that changed. That's what brought myself and some others in. And now we're really focusing on, on growth opportunities. Um, and whether or not that means we just go even deeper in the specific sports that we're in, that could certainly be the case. And we're already exploring some, some pretty interesting opportunities there. But there's also uh, areas where we're exploring that are I guess a little bit outside what historically an SIS would have would have looked into. We're we're still really really focused certainly on our on our team business and we have incredible clients there and we want to continue adding value there. Um, you know whether we we pivot into to more stuff um, obviously is is TBD. But yeah. sure. And just to be clear, then you don't just provide data to sports betting operators. You provide data to even teams and leagues uh, and yeah. so forth. Yeah. For I mean, that, the majority of our revenues today are, are from the team side. Uh, Got it. In baseball, um, the vast majority of Major League Baseball teams are using our data to make make decisions, whether it's how to select players, transact players, you know, what what the shift should be like when this player is up versus that player, et cetera. There's a lot of use cases for for the data because we we effectively are, and, and this is what's been very pioneering about the organization, frankly, and we're continuing to do so is, we, we have this term internally, we use like quantifying the unquantifiable. So not only using the box score information, which is pretty general, um, but, but capturing the next level, the, the metadata that's associated with any activity that can occur on the, on the field or, or the court uh, of play. And that's really instrumental in making the best decisions when you're trying to build a team or build a strategy or make decisions on the field of play. And, we've seen a lot of value derived from, from the team side, certainly. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that just makes perfect sense, right? Cause obviously baseball and, and clearly NFL and NBA have followed suit, <clears throat> but baseball started as really the first analytics uh, or analytically driven sports um, <clears throat> and GMs and of course managers. And I guess to some degree players, you know, are always constantly, you know, wanting to understand the metrics. I mean, safer metrics is obviously very, very important, you know, in baseball. Uh, and uh, now it's, you know, crept its way into uh, basketball and football. And all these things have turned out, turned from a nice to have or maybe competitive advantage uh, if you have it to competitive disadvantage if you don't. Um, and so, I mean, I can, I can definitely see how actually the teams and leagues themselves would, would really be the primary customers of it. I mean, sports betting operators, that's great too. Uh, but that's just one, you know, segment of, you know, that potential uh, business. So can I ask, I'm just kind of curious. So like, uh, what are maybe if you have a, an example or two in each of those three uh, sports, uh, basketball, baseball, football, uh, do you have an example or two of some, I guess, like interesting or unique uh, stat that or uh, metric that you quantify that might be, I guess, kind of uh, surprising? Yeah, I mean, so on the, on the baseball side, where, where SIS has been, frankly, revolutionary is the ability to quantify the defensive side of the game. Mm. None of that was historically captured. So we, we came up with a metric called defensive runs saved, 
um, which does exactly, it, you know, it captures exactly what the, what the, the name of the stat is, you know, it, mm -hmm. it ensures that you're able to value appropriately what a player brings to the table when they're on the field of play defensively, you know, on the basketball side, we have an incredibly gifted group of basketball minds who are, are capturing literally every single data point. So for the NBA draft, as an example, we've gone out, identified, I want to say a hundred might be a little bit less 97 prospects and are cataloging every single play that they've made throughout this entire past season. So that's about 10,000 plays per athlete. And, and within that, we're able to quantify things like actual winning the, the their impact on winning um, and not just, you know, I made this pass, the guy scored, scored the bucket, I get an assist. But when I actually made the right pass and there was a miss quantifying all of these little data points that get lost if you're not really, really dialed in and, and watching a game. So those are a couple of them, certainly on the football side, you know, I would say football analytics have come a long way because of uh, how valuable that information is in the fantasy arena, which is obviously huge. And similarly for, for sports betting as well, but we have tons and tons of metrics for the offensive and defensive line that add a lot of value to the, the teams themselves. These are very, very hard, hard to measure positions, generally speaking. Um, so we're tracking all sorts of movement there, even things like, you know, the, the hang time of, of punts, the speed at which a base runner is running, all, all the metrics you could possibly imagine at all of the levels associated with a given sport. So not just at the NFL, but also at the collegiate level for baseball, all levels of baseball internationally um, as well. We're, we're, we're capturing a lot. It takes about 40 hours to do one football game, um, wow. for example. And, and the, the level of, um, we'll call it talent, that's required for our video scouts is, is quite high. You need to have a a pretty good understanding of the sport of football in order to do so, which is quite different, obviously, from a lot of the other data providers that are out there. Their data journalists are, are generally just people who like sports and can come off the street and, you know, yep, they can say, yep, the pitch was thrown or, or whatever. We need, we need a lot of subject matter expertise, which is difficult to find, certainly, but it, it does create a bit of a, we'll call it a moat around some of the parts of our business that are, that are really intriguing. Yeah, I've always found it really silly that like assists were a, a really looked at stat when it's like it's completely dependent on the person making the basket. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, and, and RBIs, I mean, that's got to be I, I, maybe after wins for a pitcher, uh, probably one of the worst stats ever. Um, I mean, it, it, maybe maybe RBI percentage, I guess, is a little bit better. Um, but it just feels like, I mean, so many old school stats and uh, let me ask that question too, because you get a lot of old school baseball writers that are responsible for determining MVP for determining Cy Young and all this stuff. And they're still looking at wins and losses for starting pitchers, or, you know, they're still looking at RBIs for hitters. It's like, what the hell, like, what do we need to do to get these folks on board, um, with it? Uh, it just, it just is, I mean, it doesn't even take a rocket scientist to understand that some of these metrics are just really outdated and maybe they aren't going to look at, you know, uh, defensive, you know, percentages or other stuff like that. But it just, it just feels like baseball still has got a ways to go in terms of getting a lot of people like up to speed on what the real metrics are that they should be looking at. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think all of these things they take time and, and, you know, certainly one of the important factors that we focus on is, is, breaking down some of those barriers to entry. So making it easier to understand what some of the data actually means. It's great to have the data, but you need to be able to know how to use the data 
as well, obviously. So, you know, creating robust tools, we create a lot of content. I think we're seeing that shift organically in a sense in that there is so much more access to information that the, the general sports fan can go really, really deep if, if they want, you know, certainly myself and, and many others in the organization will go on Twitter and you can get into some pretty deep conversations about some of the meta stuff as it pertains to, to the individual sports. And we've got our, our SIS analytics challenge, which we do, we started doing last year. We do it for the boys and girls club of America to, to raise some funds where we release, we release uh, a bit of our football data and then challenge the, the analytical community at large to quantify something specific. So I believe this year's um, major question on the football side was like, what are, what are the optimal uh, routes to be run against specific defenses and break all of that down. And so it's been really interesting to see the number of folks that are coming sort of call it off the street with really, really robust um, ways of, of breaking down the data and analyzing that. So I think we'll see that evolution in time, you know, certainly with the hires that we come in, that we see coming in, a lot of them are coming from you know, university programs that were sports data analytics. That, that's an emergent market, certainly. So I think as time progresses more and more, everything's going to continue to evolve. And yeah, they won't just look at wins and losses and, and, and RBIs. They'll look at you know, the underlying metrics, which ultimately determine uh, wins and losses, which needs to be obviously part of the equation. So I got another question for you since I'm a big baseball buff. Um, uh, I'm just kind of curious what your... Uh, I won't tell you mine until I until I hear yours. Uh, so, what is your opinion on uh, implementing robo lumps to streamline the strike zone and make it more consistent from game to game? It's a good question. I think I'm a proponent of it generally, just because there's it removes that it removes that subjectivity from the equation. Um, and you know, while you look at other sports that have introduced technology to you know remove that from the equation as well. Something like VAR in, in soccer. I'm a big soccer guy. Or tennis. I mean, just having, you know, you can, you can zoom into like the minuscule right. uh, spot on where the ball is compared to the line. Right. And, and, and like, yes, it, it can be um, a bit of a disruption to the flow of the game and the celebrations are a little bit muted because everything needs to be checked, whatever. But ultimately it, it makes sure that what happens on the field is is actually what happens on the field, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, in that, with that sort of narrative in the back of my mind, I am a proponent of making sure that balls and strikes are balls and strikes and that ump A doesn't have his set of balls and strikes and ump B yeah. doesn't have his set of balls and strikes. Because, you know, ultimately no one really wants that necessarily. And they're obviously the best at their craft and, and, and they have incredible eyes and, and they're, they're really incredible at what they do, but... I do think there's value in, in the sort of the, the computer element of it um, and just making sure that it's standardized because, you know, there's a lot of improvements that baseball can make. And I do think that is one of them. Yeah. I'm hundred percent agree with you. I and mean, that's why I asked the question. I just, you know, uh, I mean, a little bit partial here, but just watching a couple of those games with the Brewers Reds earlier, where it was like, I mean, they were only like 93% accurate or 90, right. whatever it was. It's really bad. Uh, and you can, they now have the stats where it says like what the advantage is, how many runs uh, advantage or disadvantage each team has based on the strike zone now. I mean, and you're looking at it and like some of these games, the team is getting an extra run or two 
a theoretical advantage uh, by balls and strikes being called a certain way. And you never really had that five, 10 years ago. And you certainly didn't have it 30 years ago where they could analyze that. You just go, oh, that looked like a ball. Um, and so when they're able to analyze the correct percentages called and the runs uh, uh, basically obtained uh, or lost per team uh, by the by the balls and strikes called, I mean, that just, I, I think it's, it, it's only a matter of time. And I don't think it would be that disruptive because I mean, the ump even himself could even be holding the device or something like that. And they could still be calling out the balls and strikes um, type of thing. And I, I just, I, I think it's time. And, and when you have the analytics, like starting to analyze at that level and you've got the little square above the plate, you know, on TV at all times, it's everyone, everyone can see it. Uh, <laughs> it's, there's only one person that can see that and that's the person right. making the calls. And so, uh, yeah, I'd love to see that. And I think, you know, I, I agree with you hundred percent, just take some of those variables out. So that's the, the real numbers are the real numbers, which, which makes a lot of sense. Okay. Last question for you. Uh, so I see you have a picture of Lambeau field on your LinkedIn profile. Does that mean you're also a Packers fan or no? That is, that is correct. Yeah. So I, I live in Toronto and I would say that the Packers are the most Canadian team. Um, <laughs> and I, I fell in love with, with the sport of football when, when Brett Favre was, was running the show in green Bay and I love going down to Lambeau. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's the best experience. It's the best experience ever. So are you, uh, I guess I do have a follow-up question to that. So then uh, I'm assuming you're happy that Rodgers is back. I mean, uh, my uh, my take was is he was always coming back because there's no way he was going to retire making that kind of salary. Um, what are your thoughts on kind of the whole just Aaron Rodgers saga and now he's back in camp and everything is good and uh, it's business as usual as much as it can be? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely relieved um it definitely seemed like there was a bit of a ripple effect that would have occurred should should he have he have walked i, I remember on on nfl draft night getting that initial news that he was he was pending to go and yeah, honestly kind of panicking at the time because there was no real great backup option as he obviously like jordan loves great oh. it will be great but he's not not there he hasn't really even had many snaps at all at the nfl level i'm a big fan of aaron Rodgers in general, he, he calls it like it is, right? Um, which I got time for. Obviously he's, he seems like a great guy in general being on jeopardy and, and all of that. And, and he's a, he's an incredible leader generally speaking and, and has done amazing things in green Bay. And, and so I'm very happy that he's, he's sticking around and hopefully that means the rest of the core sticks around and uh, you know, another successful season is, is coming up. Yeah. And, and look, he wasn't saying anything that anyone, else didn't already probably agree with. I think the only slight little pushback I have is, is a lot of the, the, like the players he listed out that weren't treated well, I think all of them except three were actually under Ted Thompson, which we can't really do anything about that anyways. Um, not that I love Brian Gutekunst, but I think actually Gutekunst is trying to sign free agents. He's trying to do more than Thompson was just in, dra in, in bringing people in through the draft. So I think it was more of just a culmination of 10, 11 years of the same kind of uh, nonsense of, you know, really just, it, it was kind of always being the same way. Um, and, you know, 10, 11 years of only winning one Super Bowl. I think it was just a culmination of a lot, but he was right. I mean, he was right. Um, and I think everybody agreed with that. And so this was just the, you know, kind of the, the breaking point. He's like, all right, enough of this nonsense. This is how we need to make it be. Um, and I think it was also smart to bring comeback. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's basically no downside to it. I mean, only upside. Um, and, you know, I mean, if we can make one last go of it, um, even if Rogers does get traded after this year, I'm all for that. I'd rather have him for one more year than no more years. Um, so let's make it happen, you know, and uh, yeah, uh, hopefully we bring home another Super Bowl.
That would be fantastic for sure. Yeah. Yeah. hundred um, percent. Well, Dan, this was a great uh, episode. Really, really appreciate you being on the pod. Super, super interesting information. Um, can't thank you enough for joining us today and yeah, have an amazing rest of your week.